we are going to start today with a conversation about critical race theory. Joining me is Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a UND Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Jack, thanks for joining us. I'm happy to be here, Ashley, especially for something like this where 18 months ago, no one ever heard of it, and now everyone's an expert. Well, (laughs) yeah, that's basically my first question here is because this theory came to be about 40 years ago, and now all of the sudden it is in all the headlines. Um, It was mentioned 132 times on Fox News in 2020 alone. Before we even get into why are we talking about this as a problem after 40 years, what is this? So critical race theory is really interesting, and I do uh, basically a two-day unit on it in my philosophy of law class because it is, first and foremost, a legal theory. And it's a way of looking at our institutions to see how race works and doesn't work in our law and in our government structure. But it can be made wider and broader to look at most institutions through that. But let me explain what that means. A 30-second lesson on literary theory, right? So if you were going to be an English major, everything you need to know in the next 30 seconds. All literary theory is is taking an idea and analyzing a book or a story or something like that through that idea. So I want to read this book from the perspective of women. I want to read this book from the perspective of chairs. I want to read this book from the perspective of the poor. I want to read this book from the perspective of aliens from outer space. And very simplistically, what English majors do is look at literature from all those perspectives and compare the experience of reading or talking about or analyzing from that. Critical uh, race theory is something like that. It's an approach to analyze the government from the perspective of race as opposed to how do the laws work if you're from a rural community or how do the laws work if you're from uh, an immigrant uh, family or how do the laws work if you are illiterate, right? One of the things we can know about street signs is that street signs are designed not just for people who can read but for people who can't read. Mm -hmm. And that's why each street sign has a different kind of shape. Critical race theory is that. It's a filter we put on things in order to analyze our laws, our government from a certain perspective. So why has it become problematic in the last year and a half? Well, there's the practical reason and then there's the theoretical reason. The practical reason is, and I've forgotten his name, so I apologize, but there is a behind-the-scenes guy who gives conservative Republicans talking points, and he decided to focus on this and gave them money, and it filtered through the conservative uh, first blogosphere and then the internet and then and then Fox News, and it just became something to talk about. And one of the theories as to why people are talking about it is that when you're talking about critical race theory, you're not talking about universal health care. When you're talking about critical race theory, you're not talking about uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. When you're not talking about uh, critical race theory, you're not talking about whatever. One of my favorite factoids 
Uh, and I think this is true because no one ever <laughs> said ever said I was wrong about this. But one of my favorite factoids is that um, more legislation was passed during the Monica Lewinsky Bill Clinton impeachment hearings than in any other time in history because everyone was so distracted by the circus of the impeachment that they weren't paying attention to what the legislature was doing, and the legislature could get away with doing things that they couldn't wouldn't necessarily do when everyone was focusing on it. And so most of the debate about critical. Uh, race theory is political theater to distract people from other things. How do you as a philosopher actually go about teaching this in class? And is it fair to say you're teaching it? Because I had a conversation last week with the president of North Dakota United, Nick Archuleta, and he said it's not really something that teachers or professors are teaching. This is the way that a system worked. It's more so an invitation to debate. Well, so this is one of the things that non-teachers don't understand, especially in the upper levels of high school and college. You have to distinguish between teaching information and teaching skills. Mm -hmm. So when I teach things in my philosophy class, I certainly teach critical race theory, but I don't teach critical race theory as this is the way you should look at the world. I teach critical race theory as here, a bunch of thinkers, here are some assumptions they make. Here are some claims they make. Let's talk about how they're good. Let's talk about how they're bad. Let's talk about what they bring to the table. So let me give you a, a, a piece of that. One of the fundamental assumptions of critical race theory is that race is a construction. What does that mean? It means that there's no such objective thing as race, being white, being black, uh, where we go from that, I'm not sure, right? Being Asian, being Native American, are these races or are these not races? The idea of a race has been invented first by biologists and then by politicians and anthropologists to describe clusters of people. But let's say you have two parents, a purely white parent, whatever that means, and a purely black parent, whatever that means, and they have a kid. Is the kid black or is the kid white? You can't answer that question. Because race is a fiction. Race is a construction. Race is something we use to describe other things. They, for a while, had a term which is no longer uh, in common use called mulatto. But all mulatto was was, you know, half black, half white. In the history of the United States, we followed what has often been called the one drop rule, which is if a person has had one drop of black blood, which of course is a nonsensical statement in itself, but if you had one drop of black blood, then they were black. You saw that uh, something similar in uh, the Nuremberg Laws under Hitler, where according to the Germans, if you had one grandparent who was Jewish, you were considered Jewish. All of these things are ways of making sense of a subjective idea, and that subjective idea is race. And so critical race theory first just starts off by saying this idea of race isn't natural. It's not scientific. It's not objective. It's a tool we use. It's a construction we use in order to talk about how we cluster people in society uh, in terms of for anthropological reasons, for political reasons, for economic reasons. And, and so, so the question then is, do you object to your teacher asking the student, hey, do you think race is real or do you think race is a construction? If you don't object to that, you don't object to teaching critical race theory. How are the students reacting? The students love it. I mean, the, for, for, 
we're at a generational shift because most of the students are very comfortable with the idea of race as a social construction. Many of them think that gender is a social construction and sex is a social construction. A lot of the ideas that were uh, super controversial and, and sort of hard to grasp when I was in college are now just sort of par for the course. I used to teach a unit on the ethics of gay marriage, having students debate whether or not gay marriage is moral or not. And I don't do it anymore because students don't care. <laughs> they just they're like it. Yeah, Gay people get married. Big deal. You know, there's always going to be one or two students who object for religious reasons. But I couldn't have it as my final discussion anymore because it just wasn't controversial. It's the same sort of thing. Students don't have a problem with the idea that race is a theory – sorry, is a construction. They just may not have the words for it and they may not have the venue to sort of work out the details. Hmm. Do you ever hear from parents – I know it's a little different because at this point, the kids are in college. I but. never hear from parents. Um, <laughs> okay. My students know better. And one of the reasons why my students know better is that um, as a college student, uh, uh, college students are protected under what's called FERPA, the F Federal Education Records Protection Act, which means once they're over 18, parents can't even look at their records or have conversations with us without written permission from the students because they're mm -hmm. adults. Um, I've never had a conversation with my daughter's friend's parents or or uh, about these sorts of complaints. What, you know, what parents are upset about is when the classroom is all worksheets or when uh, the teacher is overworked and underpaid and has to pay for the pencils for themselves, right? Parents are concerned with access to teachers. They're concerned with funding. They're concerned with uh, uh, options for electives, whether or not there's going to be art class or music class or computer uh, graphics class or something like that. They're much less concerned about critical race theory. And I guarantee you that if you ask 95 percent of the people who are even writing editorials about critical race theory, they don't know what critical race theory is. They think it's something else. Hmm. We're visiting with Jack Russell Weinstein, a philosophy professor at the University of North Dakota. We are talking about critical race theory. And many of the opponents of critical race theory, they're saying, for example, let's look at the United States. And in the 400 years um, since the Mayflower landed. This has become an incredibly wealthy nation. Uh, we have some of the best trauma medical care in the world. There have been a number of scientific advances. Uh, going back to the space race, you know, we're the ones that get to the moon. We have done a lot in this country. And for example, Senator Ted Cruz has said critical race theory says that every white person is a racist. What is your reaction as a political philosopher to the statement that if we go back and, and criticize the methods that gave rise to a world superpower, what's your reaction to that? Well, Ted Cruz doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> and Ted Cruz is saying something that, you know, is not remotely defensible or true. Now, there may be individual critical race theorists who have said things like that. I've, I don't know all of them and I haven't read everything. But, but that's nonsense. Here's what critical race theory says. Critical race theory says that we have to look at the institutions of society to see how the laws and the government create structures that make it harder for 
in particular uh, African Americans to succeed than others. Now, th this word institution is ambiguous because we think of like, you know, the Bank of America as an institution, but marriage is also an institution, right? And anyone knows uh, that in there are plenty parts of the country where if you have a black uh, person and a white person who are married and walking together down the street, they get funny looks, right? That's critical race theory is going to talk about that. But what strikes me about the resistance critical race theory is that I actually think that North Dakotans would benefit and would like the critical race theorist filter of this state. Why? Because we all know that there are very, very few African Americans in North Dakota. If there's no critical race theory, if it's just personal prejudice, then the answer to the question, why are there no black people in North Dakota, is North Dakotans are a bunch of racists, right? They're a bunch of white people who hate black people, and they're going to burn people's houses down. Now, that's not true. It shouldn't be said, and no one should believe it. What critical race theory says is, look, there are strong institutions about how migration works in the United States, how the history of moving from the rural south to the urban north works, how labor works that push African Americans away from rural communities and, and rural states and push them away from the plain states to the urban centers. So it's not the North Dakotans' fault for not having any African Americans in their community because many of them are super welcoming and would love to have diverse neighbors. Without critical race theory, the only reason why North Dakota doesn't have a diverse population is that North Dakotans don't want it. And critical race theory is a way of liberating the North Dakotan population from that guilt by saying, look, there are these complex forces that if we understand, will not only understand uh, why there are no African Americans here, or very few, but also what we could do to be more welcoming institutionally and structurally. Is there anything to be said for looking at critical race theory in terms of, hey, this is the progress that we've made. We no longer use phrenology, for example, the size of a person's skull and an incredibly racist science that said, you know, because we have bigger skulls, we have better brains. Could we just look at it as, hey, we don't do that anymore? <laughs> right. So, 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 so there, there, are, there are two parts to this. The first is, that example you use is a wonderful example because Stephen Jay Gould, the scientist, went and looked at that data and saw that you know, the scientists thought that skull size was intelligent and they took the skulls from white people and filled it up with ball bearings and they took skulls from black people and filled them up with ball bearings and they counted the number of ball bearings and they saw that white people had more ball bearings. But when Gould went back to the data, he actually saw that they actually had the same amount of ball bearings, but what the scientists were doing were rounding up for white people and rounding down for black people. So it always looked like they were more for, for white people and, and, and fewer for black people. And I don't think the scientists knew they were doing it. I don't think the scientists were consciously doing it. That was unconscious bias, right? And so it's not just that that there has been progress from pseudoscience to science, it's that even the way that the scientists did science was um, swimming in this kind of racism that we wouldn't see, that we wouldn't acknowledge if we didn't look at the structures in the institutions. Now, 
I've seen on the, in, on the internet a lot of people, and this is from the left, a lot of people saying, if we don't teach cri cri critical race theory, we don't get to teach about the civil rights and we don't get to teach. And that's not critical race theory either at all, mm. uh, either. That's just American history. You don't need critical race theory to teach the progress of um, equality. <laughs> One of my all-time favorite quotes is from Chris Rock, the, the comedian, who says, we always talk about how black people have, have progressed and how, and how much better black people are doing. But in fact, it's white people who have progressed <laughs> and white people are doing better because they are no longer as racist as they once were. Right? These are filters of understanding that we can use to understand why history unfolds, but the fact that there wasn't civil rights and there was civil rights isn't a matter of critical race theory at all. It's just the history of the United States. Let's look at something that happened to me and, and tell me if I'm, I'm right or wrong here in, in trying to approach this through critical race theory. So this was a few years ago. I, I was pulled over. I had expired tabs on my plate and I didn't know. I mostly walk and I bike and I pay zero attention to my car. That's why I have a husband. <laughs> I said it. Um, but I had expired tabs. And this was just a couple of weeks after Philando Castile was pulled over and he ended up, as we know, dead in a very similar sort of interaction with the police. And I said, oh, I didn't even know my tabs were expired. Uh, my husband got something in the mail the other day. And it turns out it really was a mistake. He, they mailed the ones for his work truck and he put those on the car or whatever. It was just a mistake. But it was automatically assumed that I was telling the truth and that it was an absolute clerical error. And then I just got to go home on my merry way, which is how it can be and should be if you didn't actually do anything wrong. It shouldn't be an issue. But then we go and we look at a case like Philando Castile and so many others where there was this similar, they didn't actually really do anything all that wrong, but ended up with much more dramatic circumstances. Do we look at something like that through the lens of critical race theory? So again, I have a two-part answer. The first is the most powerful anecdote or little bit that comes from my reading critical race theory is, uh, is the following. When you think about when the Civil Rights uh, Act was, was passed, one day President Johnson signed uh, the, the, the act into law and it was law. Allegedly, all the laws and, and the structure of racism changed in our society, but the people who interpreted the law on that Monday were the same people who interpreted the law that Friday. So all the people who had spent all of their time making decisions pre-Civil Rights Act are the exact same people who are making decisions post-Civil Rights Act. Is their rationality, is their way of thinking going to change automatically because a law is, is changed? No. Why? Because they have a history of doing things. I read this really, really interesting piece um, on the internet about a woman who moved from one area to, to I, I forget, I, I think was the, I don't think it was the South, I think it was the Midwest. And, sh and she'd never been stopped in her car and she'd never been bothered and she was a, she's a white woman. And then all of a sudden she's being stopped every day and they would come at her with hands on their guns and then they'd see her and they'd open the door and they'd look annoyed and then they'd walk away. And they'd say she was driving too slow, which if, you know, she was driving two miles 
couple of women. So one day she is uh, having you know lunch, and someone comes up to her and says, and this is almost an exact quote from from the Post: "There's a black man trying to steal your truck." And she looks, and she's got a massive black French poodle that she drives with, with curly black hair, who likes to sit in the front seat with her, and. People see the poodle through the window and think that there's an African-American man in the shotgun seat. And so what the cops were doing were seeing this white woman with, with a black man in the seat assuming something was wrong and stopping her over and over and over and over again. And when she didn't have the poodle in the front seat, she was never stopped. And when she did have the poodle in the front seat, she was. Now, is that because every single police officer is racist? No, it's certainly not that simple. But the fact that they're walking to the car with their hands on their guns, which they probably didn't do for you when you were stopped, and one of the police officers is standing far away from the truck and the other is ordering them to open their windows, and then they're super tense, and then they see it's a dog, and then they relax. Critical race theory helps us understand and map out what's going on there and saying the issue isn't Officer Smith or Jones. The issue is how the police are trained, how the laws are enforced, and what kind of acceptable cues allow a police officer to pull someone over. And here's just a minor thing, right? I went to school for seven years to be uh, seven years of a PhD program to be a professor. Police officers who have a much more important job than I have and a much more dangerous job than I have will go to academy for anywhere from six weeks to six months. There's no room for the subtle lessons. And so a lot of police officers learn most of what they need to know on the streets from other police officers, right? There's that movie Training Day, which is famously about this and and other movies like that. If police officers had three years or four years of training and training in de-escalation tactics and training in being aware of not just their own biases because that's a loaded phrase, but being aware of the patterns that we rely on when we see and do certain things, then they would react better in a lot of these situations. So along comes someone who says from a critical race theory perspective – Police academy is too short, and because it's too short, it's racist. What people who don't understand critical race theory will hear is, all police officers are racist. Mm -hmm. But what the critical race theorists uh, people are saying is, look, this stuff is hard, it's subtle, and there's hundreds and hundreds of years of history. So we're going to need more than six months to help people overcome the bad lessons they've learned from growing up in this country. We want to underscore the good lessons. We want to underscore all the wonderful things that they've learned. But we also have to negate the negative things, especially when you're a police officer. Critical race theory allows us to say maybe in the name of equality, police academy should be three years long, four years long, instead of six weeks or six months, but depending on whether it's a local or a, or a, or a state trooper. Jack Russell Weinstein is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota and the host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We have him on once a month for a philosopher's point of view on a major news story. Jack, thanks for joining us today. It was my pleasure.